welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership. My name is Scott Miller. I serve as your host and interviewer each week where we talk to an interview, have conversations, sometimes very vulnerable conversations with experts in their field. Maybe a CEO, business titan, best-selling author, a celebrity, or someone perhaps that has dedicated the better part of their life to recovering from a personal trauma or has done research behind the scenes not in the spotlight and has insights and inspiration to share with our listeners and viewers in what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. As your host, I've also written a book about the podcast called Master Mentors, published by HarperCollins, 30 Transformative Insights from Your Greatest Minds. The book features 30 of our first interviewees, where I wrote a fast, easy, breezy chapter around 30 of our guest transformational insights. I'm now into writing and finishing the manuscript for volume two of Master Mentors coming out in 2022. Uh, paperback copy, very easy to read. If you'd like to take a deeper dive on some of our most interesting guests, pick up a copy of Master Mentors. Today's guest, Joe Navarro, is joining us from Tampa, Florida, 25-year veteran in public service to our country, a former expert from the FBI on all things around negotiation, body language, consultation with people in high-pressure, intense situations. Has written, I think, 14-plus books as a world-renowned speaker, coach, advisor, and expert. And today he's joining us about his most recent release called Be Exceptional. Joe Navarro, welcome to On Leadership. Great to be here, Scott. Thank you. We're ha we have rival uh, backgrounds. Your bookcase is excellent. <laughs> Many of those are books that you've authored yourself. You are a prolific writer. Joe, today we're going to talk yeah. about a, a wide-ranging topics. Like, you know, what do you learn from an FBI expert on counterterrorism and interrogation, negotiation, the value of yeah. listening skills? What does nonverbal communication really encompass beyond just body language? You are an expert on all those topics, those things that all perhaps relate to being a leader, maybe not um, interrogation, although some of us would use that to employ in our leadership skills wrongly. Joe, spend a few minutes and uh, reorient our listeners and viewers around the world on who you are, what your journey has been like, and then we'll take a dive into your most recent book, Be Exceptional. Well, thank you for, uh, for having me on, on the show. You, you, I, you know, I started out... Um, uh, you know, you're based in uh, in Salt Lake City. I started out at uh, Brigham Young University. I was recruited by the FBI at the age of uh, 22, and um, not sure why they hired me. Uh, now that I think back on how young I was, but um, came into the bureau, spent 25 years uh, chasing spies. And then when I retired in 2003, I began to uh, write about um, the things that I knew about, um, interviewing, um, terrorism, and, and so forth, and um, never set out to be a, um, a thought leader or a writer. Um, but somehow, 14 books uh, later, I've, uh, uh, I've ended up uh, in that role where I'm often asked to, uh, to share my thoughts. Uh, in, in this area where, you know, we, we think about nonverbal behavior, but the thing that we all have in common, both you, myself, and everyone that is uh, watching or listening, is that we're all in the people business. And if, if, you, if you were to look at 
what what ties us and binds us it is simply that and it really doesn't matter that i you know i was fortunate that in my bureau career um i was able to do uh, around 13,000 interviews and i had the 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 um the opportunity to collect a lot of information about human behavior. Um, in, in a way, I was, uh, as an uh, ethologist, um, uh, Jane Goodall uh, was in the jungle uh, with apes. I was in the, in the human jungle collecting uh, information. And what I've learned from that, um, from those experiences, um, then directly translated into the writings uh, in, in, uh, in my various books, including what everybody is saying, which is about body language, and then the latest, which is really about what are the traits, what are the, the traits that uh, exceptional individuals all possess? Joe, you have a quite captivating journey of your own. This has been a lifelong passion, interest, obsession of yours. I think I heard once where, as a young boy, you uh, learned, was it maybe Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin and Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> not Leonardo DiCaprio, Leonardo da Vinci. Big difference. He's on my mind for some reason. Uh, yeah. They used to, as, chill, as artists, as experts, they would be unusually observant. They would write things down. And as a young boy, as an immigrant from Cuba, not speaking the language yeah. and having a fairly rough transition into American society, you would also take copious notes on people's body language. Talk a bit about what your early childhood upbringing, moving to the U.S. as you were fleeing communist Cuba, how that maybe yeah. uh, ignited this passion and genius you had, latent genius in you, around observing people's body language and communication skills. Uh, boy, you synopsized it rather nicely. Uh, my family fled Cuba uh, when the communists took over and uh, coming to the United States, uh, I didn't speak English. And, um, and because my parents were working two and three jobs, um, I spent a lot of time alone. But one of the things that I found interesting was that the one common language we had was body language, that when somebody smiles, when somebody um, is tender towards you, uh, it didn't matter what culture you were in. Uh, this was something you could rely on. And similarly, if if they didn't want to talk to you, if they didn't want to play with you and so forth, the same thing. And for whatever the reason, I, I just found that um, body language was so authentic and it's so quick. Um, you don't have to wait for people to say things. We begin to transmit what we're feeling well in advance. And I... I you know, I, I remember as a 15, 16, 17-year-old keeping a little notebook of these observations. I remember one, one of the earliest one was, you know, why is it that birds, uh, when they flock uh, south in the wintertime, why do they all sit uh, equidistant uh, on the power line? And then, you know, I'm walking outside and I'm looking, I was living in Miami Beach at the time, and uh, you notice people lining up at the bus stop and they're all equidistant from each other. And I thought, you know, do they hand out a memo or something? <laughs> so little things like that. Uh, I just became curious about it. And, um, and then certainly once I was in the FBI, uh, you realize that um, you're really a paid observer. 
And, um, it, it, you know, so much of our work, it's about observations. And, and, I, and you, you quickly learn the best observers are the best agents. And I think the same thing happens in business and, and in leadership. When I studied, um, you know, uh, leaders throughout history uh, for uh, Be Exceptional, and when I looked at, at the titans of, of, of industry, one of the things that you learn is that these individuals were all great observers. And, and for a leader, the, the ability to observe that which is essential, to observe the, the needs, the wants, um, but perhaps even more importantly, the fears and concerns of the people that um, they lead. Are, are really critical for, uh, for, for leadership. Joe, you've mentioned yourself, you served uh, our nation, the US, for 25 years as an agent, mm -hmm. counterterrorism agent in FBI, and you say you chased spies. Do you find that spies are equally as educated and trained on body language and observation as are the agents that are chasing them? That's a, that's a great question, Scott. And uh, I have to say, in, in 20 years, nobody's asked me that, uh, that question. I, I think observation is very personal. I mean, obviously, for instance, uh, uh, back when the Soviet Union was at play, uh, the KGB, um, th their schools lasted two, three, four years, um, where the FBI Academy was 16 weeks. Um, there's some things that can be taught, you know, you can be taught what to look for, for instance, you know, how often does the suspect look at his watch? Is he looking at his watch near the top of the hour or the bottom of the hour, th things like that. But uh, on a personal level, I found that it, it really was very individual, that whether I was dealing with the East German intelligence, Chinese intelligence, whether I was dealing with um, the, you know, targets from the Middle East or, or even Cuban intelligence. It was, it was really about what efforts those individuals were making to uh, not only be great observers, but to be, you know, to exercise great operational tradecraft. So um, it's, um, I, I don't think you can generalize. And, and it's the same way, in, uh, you know, in leadership. Um, you can go in and have a class and there'll be a hundred people in the class, but look at that small group that takes that key information and then takes it to a different level. Um, and that's very uh, individualized. Joe, I wanna talk about the power of emotional regulation. Before I go there, mm -hmm. we all wrestle with this struggle, differentiating our emotions, our opinions, our feelings, our intuition, our observation mm -hmm. with facts and not conflating or confusing them. Was there ever a time in your career where you were convinced someone was doing something, that they were a spy or whatever, and then you'd built a self-fulfilling prophecy, but later your observation, your facts proved that you had exaggerated, it was not accurate, and if so, what was the lesson learned and how to like, uh, to uh, catch yourself, recognize when was your own sleuthful work kind of getting out of control? Yeah, I, well, I, you know, the emotions, you know, you look at television or the movies and you think, oh, these guys with the, with the sunglasses, the dark suits, they don't have emotions. 
BO work is very emotional. Um, I, you know, I remember having to, to arrest uh, pedophiles that were traveling interstate um, and just doing horrific things with, with children. And, and you have to keep those emotions in check. Um, I, honestly, I, I can't think of a time where the emotions were so much the problem as uh, our inability as humans to foresee everything that you're confronted with. And I'll give you two examples. In the one case, uh, we, we had a, a woman, a, a spy, uh, her name was Kelly Church, and she was such an effective liar. You know, um, she basically bamboozled us for about a year because uh, everything that she said, we couldn't corro corroborate because the evidence was overseas or in the possession of the, uh, the, the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, part of us wants to believe what she's saying. I mean, she basically accused her husband of being the, the actual spy. She was, and, she was an American yeah. that had been hired by the Soviet Union or she was a Soviet living here in the U.S.? Good question. She was an American soldier who um, had been recruited uh, by uh, a hostile intelligence service and was being paid Thank you. Uh, through an intermediary. Thank you. Um, so she was taking American documents and, and passing them on. But of course, uh, we don't have the evidence. But what that taught me was that, you know, it talks, of, you know, we talk about human gullibility, no matter how good you are, and no matter how clever or well-trained, um, it, it, always, it, it always behooves us to corroborate everything that, that, it, that uh, we're hearing because she was able to lie so effectively. And in the end, we were able to uh, disprove everything that she said and eventually she um, uh, confessed. But what was troubling to me as an agent was, you know, I'm supposed to be the bureau's expert on nonverbals. And she was just so effective that it, it was like this gray noise in, in my head um, where I, I really would go one way or the other in, in dealing with her. And eventually it, it, it worked out. But, you know, we we sometimes think we know what's going on. We sometimes assume we know everything that's going on. And sometimes we just have to, uh, you know, slow down and say, let's collect the facts before we come to some judgment. And that was the great lesson for me. And the fact that we had spent a year on the investigation and probably had spent over a quarter million dollars um, in, uh, you know, in trying to find the truth. And um, so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, we're human too. We make mistakes. Joe, you mentioned you had two in mind. Was there another example of that you wanted to share? Yeah, the other one has to do with, you know, with body language. And there's a small section in the book where I talk about uh, body language and how it's used. And, uh, and it, it was this, that sometimes, you know, we make all the right observations, uh, but we don't know what's behind it. And one of the things that uh, I, I teach when I teach body language is that we look for indicators of stress. So 
compressed lips, touching of the uh, of the neck dimple, the suprasternal notch, uh, ventilating behaviors, scratching behaviors, things like this. And I had this uh, woman um, who uh, was accused of, um, of of some fraud. And we had called her into the office. Normally, I work spy cases, but there was a shortage of, of help. And, um, and after about a half hour, uh, you know, she wasn't calming down. She was becoming more and more nervous. And I thought to myself, you know, you're a clever guy, Joe. Just go ahead and confront her. And uh, so I said, ma'am, um, you look like you have something you need to get off your chest. And she says, well, thank God, Mr. Navarro, because when I parked downstairs, I only had two tokens and the meter's about to run out. And so I had read all the right body language, right? All these indicators of stress, but it wasn't because she was involved in any kind of crime. In fact, her, her ID had been stolen. And it's, it's it, you know, these two reminders uh, have served me so well to just be a little reticent, to hold back and say, you know what, my job is to assess, the job of, of, of any leader, of any manager is to assess first, collect as much information, ask questions, and, um, you know, and where possible, try to find out what's the underlying cause of the behaviors that you see. And um, so those, those are the, the, the two that I will forever remember. Joe, you must be everybody's favorite dinner party guest. When you're in Salt Lake, you are coming to my house, and we're going to have a great time. In many ways, this most recent book, your 14th book, Be Exceptional, is really a leadership yeah. book. It's a parenting book. It's a relationship book. It's basically a book about how to be an exceptional person. I found it riveting. And one of the concepts that I like the most is this idea around emotional regulation, probably because yeah. I'm so poor at it. Uh, our chairman of our board, Bob Whitman, is perhaps the best at it I've ever seen. I've never seen the man lose his temper. I've never heard him say a curse word. He's quite unrelatable in many cases. I mean that as a compliment to him. But Bob is a model of what you write about, about the power of emotional regulation, not just as an mm -hmm. FBI interrogator, but as like a friend and a human. Will you talk about, yeah. talk to those Scott Millers that are watching and listening around the world that uh, perhaps our emotions are some of our best assets, right? We're very creative and we you know, have a lot of energy, but sometimes our strengths, as you know, if overplayed, can become our weaknesses. Speak to the millions right. of people like me that need to learn the value of emotional regulation. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, because this is something that I work on every day. You know, we the, the thing about emotional regulation is that it really can only take place if we are introspective. And that's one of the key features of, of really exceptional people, is that they're introspective enough to, to say, you know, did I just get out of line? Did I just say something I should have said? Uh, was I just uh, becoming a little volatile there and so forth? Is, uh, is this energy uh, uh, that I'm manifesting right now way out of, out of, out of place? Um, emotional re regulation, I found, was one of those things that is often not written about, and yet it's so important 
when it comes to individuals that are trustworthy, that uh, are conscientious, that we can sort of anchor ourselves around them, that we know that they're not going to be mercurial and explode on us, that they won't do silly things that, uh, as we've seen with some CEOs where, uh, you know, maybe they decide it's, it's a great idea to be on camera smoking marijuana or doing something else that affects the livelihood of the people that, that work for them. We have the opportunity to, to self-regulate if we but will take the time uh, to, to do it. And, and I find that except, you know, some people, yes, they're, they're, they're born very placid. They've, they've grown up in that kind of environment, but where we don't, and I, I've seen it in my own life where I sometimes am impatient. Um, I have to say to myself, you know, Joe, this is affecting everybody around you. It's affecting your loved ones. It's affecting the people you lead. It's, it's affecting the people that you manage. And um, you have a responsibility. And so I have to ratchet that back. But that can only take place if we have that introspection. In fact, Joe, you wrote about in the book, you had a, a, a colleague agent that was sort of your Jiminy Cricket. She was, she was a she, and eventually she was transferred and left, and your emotional right. regulation wasn't as uh, maybe as uh, thoughtful, but you said she was a good benchmark for you to kind of help you realize, Joe, you need to go for a walk. Joe, you need to take a breath. You strike me as a very calm person. Perhaps it's your Latin yeah. personality by nature, but you, <laughs> it sounds like you have, you've grown and conditioned yourself to be much more regulated than perhaps your natural personality is. Well, I'm 30 years older than uh, when that took place. But, you know, you're talking about the, uh, the, the wonderful uh, Terry Moody. And in fact, I think in the book, I say that all of us need a, a Terry Moody in our lives. Uh, wonderful lady, really super smart, very patient, a mother uh, and, uh, and, a, and a great wife. And, and in, in a certain way, I, I needed that balance. And, and sometimes we can't balance ourselves, but it's useful to, to have that, that person. I, I lucked out with, with Mrs. Moody. In fact, we, we made one of the, the biggest spy cases in the history of the FBI because she helped to balance me. And, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, in England, uh, the guys talk about having their best mate, somebody they go to the pub with and share ideas with and, and so forth in the work environment. That's that's what she did, and she was that buffer. She was that that extra person there who could say, "Joe, you're not eating. Joe, today you're out of control. You can't get on the phone and yell at headquarters like that, even though they dropped the ball." Um, I mean, I they, at one period there, we we call headquarters and we we say we need a, a map of this little town in Germany and and they send us a tourist map and I was I get on the phone and I just want to bite somebody's head off. I said, you expect me to go to trial and prosecute this case with a tourist map? Are you serious? And, you know, she was sitting there next to me <laughs> telling me to 
to, uh, to, to calm down. And um, yeah, we, um, we need people like that. And, uh, and I'm sure uh, she would say that I'm a lot calmer now, uh, but, but in, in the trenches, um, it, I think it serves us, uh, it serves us well. Oh, you are so coming to my house for a dinner party. So let's figure out why you need to be in Salt Lake City and you are coming out, my friend. Uh, let's pivot. First of all, let's kind of just put a bow on that because I don't want to underestimate the value of what you talk about as this, this super strength of emotional regulation, of being in control of our emotions. In 10 situations, for you, it's life or death. For you, it was a national security issue. For many of us, it's our right. reputations. It's our careers. I'm not always in control of my emotions, and it's one of my strengths, and sometimes in terms of adrenaline and solving problems and maybe even saving a situation. Other times, it's quite damaging to my reputation and relationships, and I have to make sure I know when to employ that and when to step back. It's one of the key opening concepts in your book, Be Exceptional. Another is this this idea of the power of observation. Joe, I am the father of three young boys that are, I think, at this moment, seven, nine, and 11. My oldest son, his his name is Thatcher, after my hero, Margaret Thatcher. And Thatcher is an empath. He's very empathic. He kind of follows the whole kind of birth birth order of children. He's very in touch with what's going on in the room. He knows who's sad. He knows who's lonely. He knows who's okay. And therefore, he can help or talk with this person. He's quite mature that way in his age. Will you just riff for a few minutes on the power of observation, why it is so helpful as leaders in relationships, building cultures, and quickly, what are some tips that all of us can use to perhaps better understand observing and why that's so valuable as a leader, as a colleague in a company? Yeah, uh, great question, and, uh, and, and you're lucky. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's always, uh, I'm always happy when someone is, they say, you know, I'm very uh, uh, empathetic, I'm an empath, and, and so forth. Uh, which tells me they're great observers because, you know, one of the things that we do subconsciously and, and empathic people do is they're assessing for comfort and discomfort. And w- humans are very binary. From the time we're born, we're either crying or content. Um, we're, we're either uncomfortable or, or comfortable. And empathic people pick up on that. Um, and, you know, whether you're running a meeting or, um, you know, you're at a family gathering, Uh, you know, you come into a room and you've got to be able to read that room. This is what Daniel Goldman was talking about, those who have emotional intelligence, is the ability to read and understand others. And and it's such a blessing. I, I, I can tell you that when I can come into a room and I can do what uh, uh, Dr. Amdali at, uh, at uh, Harvard University used to say, do a thin slice assessment, quickly see and read everybody and get a sense for what's going on. Are there any issues? Is, is someone having some difficulty or, or, or struggling uh, w- with, with something? I think great leaders... You know, when I look at the, the life of Alexander the Great, who would go out and, and walk amongst his men and talk to them, um, the ability to, to, to read them and, and see where's their energy, uh, 
I'm, I'm reading a book now about uh, the great tennis player Agassi, and he is one of the finest observers uh, of, of everything, nonverbals, uh, the crowds, everything. And he talks about how all that played into his strategy, um, the ability to read the, his opposition um, can, cannot be understated. And it's, you know, and it's not just, Scott, what's in front of you. It's also, as you know from the book, is exceptional individuals have the ability to observe things that are taking place, which they can take advantage of, such as something novel of, um, you know, putting together an idea that maybe nobody else uh, uh, would have thought of. You know, we talk, everybody knows what Velcro is. We all use Velcro. Most people don't realize that in the middle of World War II, a, uh, a, a Swiss uh, uh, hiker uh, gets a nettle stuck in his, uh, in his socks and he looks at it under a microscope and says, well, shoot, I can do that. This stuff sticks to everything. I just need to find the fiber, create a fiber that has these hooks um, and, uh, and these claw-like features. And he invents Velcro. You, you can only do that if, if you, you can only innovate if you're a great observer, uh, which is the same thing that um, the Wright brothers did. They literally would go outside and watch birds fly, just as Leonardo da Vinci uh, did, and say, wow, that air, they're not just pushing, those wings aren't just pushing down on the air, the air is going over the wings, and that's creating lift. And um, so great observers, exceptional individuals have that advantage. They can see what's going on around them, but they can also foresee what might be in, in, the, in the future. Joe, I'm enjoying how broad ranging this conversation is. I want to spend some time talking about body language. Before mm -hmm. we go there, you are pretty passionate about a concept called psychological safety. My sense is this is probably an interview technique. You've conducted over 10,000 interviews over the course of your career with the FBI. Uh, what do we need to know, regardless of our role, whether we're married or single or, or, or widowed or we're divorced, whether we're a leader formally or informally, whether we're an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur? Yeah. What do we need to know about well, the value I... of psychological safety? Yeah, I, actually, I... I, I, I I prefer the term psychological comfort. Psychological comfort is what all humans seek. Uh, we thrive under uh, psychological comfort. You know, part of that is we feel safe. We feel comfortable. We feel um, that, that things are pleasant. That contributes to not only to life, but to establishing great relationships. You know, when we talk about, well, how do you establish rapport? The first thing I, I tell people is work on establishing psychological comfort. Well, what is that? You know, if, if, a, if a person doesn't like loud voices, then don't talk loudly. If they wanna meet outdoors rather than indoors, uh, then meet outdoors. We humans have, have uh, cer certain preferences but whether you're interviewing, whether you're uh, conducting a formal liaison, wh whatever you're, you're doing, if you strive for psychological comfort, 
you're going to be, be the beneficiary. You know, I, I talk about, well, what's the opposite? Psychological discomfort. Think about the times you've been in an argument and then 20, 30 minutes later, after it's over, you remember all the clever lines you should have said. And, you know, you think, well, why couldn't I think of, of those things when I was in the middle of the argument? And that's because psychological discomfort created by stress, created by circumstances, keeps you from being able to think fully and clearly. And so we strive for that psychological comfort. For me, even when I was working against my nation's enemies, when I was dealing with uh, intelligence officers, hostile intelligence officers, it was, you know, I, I, I used to have people question me, why are you talking to them in a hotel? Why are you ordering food? And I would, I, I felt bad that I would have to justify because if I can keep someone in front of me for two hours, three hours, four hours, and they feel comfortable talking to me, eventually I'm going to get something out of it. Um, you know, this, this nonsense of that you see on television where somebody's being interviewed and they throw down a book or they slam a desk or, or something like that and they create psychological discomfort, um, that always works against you. And, uh, and so for me, uh, psychological comfort uh, was, was always uh, key. Thanks, Joe. Let's talk about body language. Uh, you are one of the world's leading authorities, experts on body language, verbal, nonverbal communication. Tell us some things we don't know. Tell us, kind of dig down into your treasure chest and share three or four interesting and applicable insights that we, as perhaps leaders of people, workers, yep. colleagues, can, can build relationships, build trust with others by better understanding somebody else's nonverbal communication. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, and I'm glad you, uh, you brought that up. One of the easiest ones, one that we can employ in a virtual environment or live environment, anytime you greet somebody, arch your eyebrows, right? So when we care about someone, we, we do this gravity-defying behavior where we go, hey, how are you, Scott? Um, that's powerful. It's a lot more powerful than going, hey, Scott, how are you? Yeah. Um, uh, simple behavior, but even babies at three months begin to respond to eyebrow arching. Um, the other one I would tell you is, and it's very useful in business, is when you talk to people, tilt your head, cant your head slightly. Um, it does a couple of things. It helps people to relax and it increases face time. This is invaluable. You know, you're trying to uh, score points, get a message across. Um, I was just uh, talking to a sale, international sales group, and, and I said, you know, you, you, can, you can increase uh, the amount of face time if, if you will just tilt your head slightly. And, and we, we, we tilt our heads and show our necks when there's a high degree of comfort. And that's why in, at a cafe, you may have two uh, uh, lovers and, and they both are looking at, at each other with, with, with canted heads. What was surprising to me <laughs> was, uh, I mean, this is a major event. How few people, very few people had ever heard of this. And, and I'm thinking, this is, this is 
this is critical to uh, uh, to this. Um, one of the things that that you should avoid, for instance, is if someone asks you a question, you're, you're, you're trying to establish trust, you're trying to establish rapport. Um, anytime we have to do things like ventilate ourselves to answer a question, like somebody says, is that going to be done by, by July 1st? And you have to ventilate the answer. You go, yeah, I think so. You're sending out these, these, uh, these, these bad signals. Um, you know, when you, when you want to establish, um, um, confidence, uh, display confidence, remember that the confidence person speaks with their hands, but the gestures are smooth and broad, right? The difference between a general and a corporal in their body language is the corporal's hands will be all over the place. The general will be smooth, but, but, but broad. Use the hands to uh, potentiate uh, messages. Remember that um, to, when we steeple, when we press the fingertips together, it looks like a church steeple. This is one of the most powerful behaviors indicative of, of confidence, but that we can also use our hands, especially with the the thumbs raised to be emphatic. So simple behaviors. Um, uh, these are the behaviors I like to say of leadership that demonstrate that that you and that you are in charge. Um, use your eyes to communicate uh, both individually and and uh, and, and collectively. Some of the other behaviors to avoid is, you know, the lip biting, lip compression, uh, neck touching. These are all associated with um, uh, negative uh, emotions. And uh, so uh, for, for leaders uh, and managers, they, they should be avoided. Joe, speak to your obsession with feet. I, I've read about and heard about <laughs> you have a fascinating insight on the power of the direction of your feet. Give us a minute on that. Well, Scott, I <laughs> okay. I would Not reward an obsession that, with feet. You get the point. Yeah, Talk no, about the I, professional power of feet. <laughs> I I know what you meant. I just I just <laughs> like the way it sounded. As it turns out, the feet are the most honest part of our body. Um, our faces, uh, by social convention, we have to smile at each other, right? You smile, I smile. You nod, I nod. This morning, I was out for a walk. Somebody tip their head, I tip my head, and so forth. But your feet do not have a social contract. Uh, when you are a, a, on top of a building or on a high mountain, you, your feet do not run to the edge. Uh, the, the, this exquisite area of the brain called the limbic system, it, it's, it's, it's elegant. It doesn't do a lot of thinking, but it reacts to the world. It doesn't permit your feet to go near that ledge. Um, when you see someone that you don't like, you may look at them, but um, your feet will turn away from them. They're extremely honest. One of the things we found in, in the research is with couples, 
that uh, one of the early indicators that they're not getting along is that uh, they would uh, move their feet away from each other. So I love the honesty of the feet. Um, you know, you're talking to somebody and, uh, and all of a sudden one of their, uh, their foot uh, turns towards an exit and you know they've got to go. And so the, the, uh, the emotionally or socially intelligent would say, do you need to leave? Sure enough, it always works that way. Even before they look at their watch, their feet are already indicating the, the direction that, um, that they have to go to. So uh, that's my obsession with, uh, <laughs> For clarity. with the feet. Okay, Joe. Because they're honesty. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, send us off with something juicy. I'm sure there are uh, uh, proprietary you know, secrets that you don't share because of your service to our nation. But is there something yeah. fascinating that our listeners and viewers could take away from your service in the FBI, whether it be interrogation or spying or counterinterrogation or counterterrorism for that matter, what would you send yeah. us off that we would all be interested in learning that may not be well known, but you could share? You know, that's a tough question because th this could be framed or answered in, in many different ways. I, I, I take pride that uh, with with just about everybody that I put in prison, um, in the end, uh, saw me as someone um, that they could uh, trust. Uh, in one case, um, the, the suspect wrote to me uh, from prison for years. And um, it, it, was, it was something that I never expected. It's not something that it, it, it's taught. Uh, at the FBI, but it taught me that if, if you never lose your moral compass, if you do your job, if you abide by the rules, if, if, you, if you do what is expected and other people do the same um, and see that you do these things, th this is powerful. I, I would close with this. I, I'm always reminded, and, and it's in the book, of what Carl Sagan said, which was, it, it, we aren't who we think we are. We, we're not even what we hope we think we are. All we are, and I'm paraphrasing here, is the sum total of our influence on others. And that's all we are. And whether it was, you know, working with students, mentoring, uh, working as an FBI agent, putting criminals, I mean, serious criminals in prison. I mean, one of them had, had stolen the nuclear go codes, for heaven's sake. I always abided by, uh, by, by that concept that what I do must be legal, but more importantly, that um, this has a positive influence on others, even the bad guys. And, um, and I tried to live my, my life that way. Joe, that was very noble and aspirational, genuinely. But it wasn't juicy. So I want you to share something that people might find interesting. Like, they don't know this that's going on in the world, and it'd be helpful to know that. What do you got? What, what do I have got? You, you like, know, for example, Scott, this like is tough many? because I'm thinking I haven't cleared that 
I everything got you. I, I got say, you. I don't want to set you up. I don't want to expose you as a lover of feet and as a sharer of national <laughs> secrets. No, no. So. I, yeah, you have to remember, I have to think about what has been cleared of by course. the FBI to, uh, to, to talk about. I, I would say this. I was fortunate to be involved in an espionage case with Mrs. Moody, where th at the beginning of the case, we thought, you know, at most, this is going to be two or three months. This case lasted 10 years. And it's a and it's a dreadful case. Most people don't know this. It's the only case in American history where a general testified in federal court and said this, had hostilities broken out because of the damage these spies conducted, our nation's defeat would have been assured. That's frightening. Wow. To this day, my hair stand up because even though I investigated the case, I didn't know how much damage had truly been done. And that's something that very few people know. That's exactly what I was hoping for. Your book, your 14th book, your current book is called Be Exceptional. Like I said, when I opened, I think it's a very powerful leadership book. It'd be a great book for corporate leaders to buy for their team members and have sort of a book club chapter read around. Uh, it's available now, of course, on all major websites and, and retail book uh, sites as well. Be Exceptional from Joe Navarro. Joe, what's next for you? That's a that's a great question. Uh, I think for the coming year, uh, some more virtual uh, lectures. I will be uh, starting to do some research on uh, on perhaps uh, an, another book, and uh, hopefully, I'll get to uh, hook up with you and uh, and and do another podcast at that time. So we'll do that podcast after the dinner at my house. Uh, we'll see you on B Street in the avenues in Salt Lake City. <laughs> Joe Navarro, thank you for your service to our nation. Thank you for the great insights in Be Exceptional. We wish you well. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And, and thanks to you. Fascinating interviews. I'll tell you, these interviews sometimes go 35, 40 minutes, and the good stuff is always at the end. So make sure you hang on <laughs> to the very end of the interviews. Thank you to Joe Navarro. We'll see you back next week for a new conversation on leadership.